So welcome to Today Live by Film, a film discussion podcast focused on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy and I'm joined as always by my co-hosts Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. How are you doing today, guys? Good. How's it going? Yeah. America. 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 <laughs> Fuck yeah. Um, for, those, for those listening, we're recording on the 5th of July. Um, obviously, I didn't mean shit all to me, but uh, to, to Chris and Zach and all the American listeners, obviously yesterday was a, a big one for your guys' calendar. Any sore heads or you having a few brews or? Um, no, I wish I did. So maybe I would have fallen asleep over all the fireworks late at night. <laughs> yeah, same thing. We had a, we have a, a downtown people decided to get bold this year and try to shoot some fireworks off from the street. So they were shooting until about three in the morning. Uh, which which kept us up, but luckily didn't keep up our four year old. So all good there. Um, Silver uh, linings. But uh, yeah, exactly. But no, all all good. Uh, ha- happy to uh, be past it and happy to get a day off. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, can't com- never never complain with a day off. Uh, <laughs> right. Obviously, depending on the situation, but I'll never complain about a day off personally. <laughs> that's right. Cool. So uh, we're going to be talking about two films today. Uh, first is a documentary and then just a, a normal narrative feature like we would normally talk about. Um, we're going to crack into the first one. Uh, it's called Gimme Shelter, uh, 1970, which if any music fans listening probably recognize Gimme Shelter, probably about the Rolling Stones. And your, your guess would be correct. It's made by a, a trio of directors, uh, two brothers, Albert and David Maisels and Charlotte Zerwin. Uh, just to give you a sort of brief overview on what's on IMDb, how it's described. So uh, when 300,000 members of the Love Generation collided with a few dozen Hells Angels at San Francisco's Altamont Speedway, the bloody slash that transformed a decade's dreams into disillusionment was immortalized on this film. That's a fucking long sentence. Um, <laughs> and it's not really wholly... I think I think it kind of paints a different picture to what someone would expect from this documentary. Um, we can go a bit into the ins and outs uh, later stage, but um, just generally speaking, what, what did you guys think? Did you enjoy it? Uh, yeah, I I enjoyed the uh, the uh, documentary. I should say um, we've watched a few documentaries on here, and I, I do think I tend to like this style a little bit better. Um, we'll talk about kind of you know close up and stuff later, like how we've talked about how documentaries try to build narratives but i kind of like the laid-back style um just the idea that we're just kind of watching something unfold whether rather than try uh, them trying to necessarily inform us of something specific so yeah i enjoyed it yeah for sure i'm in the same boat on that one what what about you chris yeah so just just real quick um you know they shoot pictures has it at 546 which you know probably a bit high yeah Yeah. exactly High, high for me um Fan, diehard fans of the Rolling Stones might disagree. <laughs> they might think <laughs> this is the top 10 of all time. Um, but, uh, it, and I also thought it was just worth calling out. It's kind of an interesting time for movies in 1970. You know, typically there's going to, we, we've identified years have some trends or, or there seems to be something going on, but 1970 feels like a real kind of black hole. I mean, Patton came out, which is obviously very, very famous, very, very you know, probably deserves the credit it gets. Um, and the MASH film came out, which is very divisive. Uh, some some people really don't like it, but I like it. Um, and after that, I mean, it quickly you you quickly lose the the kind of household names for any any big movies. There's Tora Tora Tora, which was big for the time. 
uh, Wanda, which was pretty big for the time. Neither one of those, I think, a 20-year-old could talk about off the top of their head. Um, then you start, you know, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, El Topo, Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. I mean, in terms of just sort of any, any kind of real household name, you know, movies, it drops off a cliff pretty fast. And I think it's an interesting opportunity to slip in a, a doc on one of the probably biggest rock bands of all time. So, you know, it was financially successful. Um, I can't believe he didn't bring up the Aristocats. The um, Disney's Aristocats, that's true. Yeah. I'm, I'm flummoxed that you're leaving <laughs> out the Aristocats. Speaking of uh, music, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, um, yeah, the, like, the original uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at 1970 as well, and I see what you mean. It kind of, like, you have Patton and, I suppose, Caddy's Heroes and MASH, and then it seems to be a lot of a lot of indie films, though. Um, like, obviously, you mentioned El Topo. Wanda, is pro- is, even though it's not super famous household name, it's such an influential film uh, as an indie film. Uh, I watched it a couple of months ago, and it was, it was really interesting. I didn't love it just because I just didn't love it, but I could see why it was so influential. Yeah, 1970 is interesting, and this film is kind of interesting from the time it comes out as well. You know, that sort of post, you know, sort of Vietnam, post-Summer of Love, everything was getting a bit more into that sort of 70s conspiracy, you know, just that sort of paranoia, that anxiety age that was sort of starting to come into the world and would soon obviously come into movies as well, especially during the 70s, you know, with the political thrillers and stuff like that. And this film kind of, kind of um, treads that really, because obviously just of people who are wondering, you know, how the film sort of plays out if you haven't seen it. And like the first half of the film is pretty standard fair concert film stuff. And, you know, just the Stones playing songs, trip dates on their US tour. And at the same time, trip, this is kind of interspliced in with, um, them trying to get a venue for this open air music, almost like a music festival um, that they want to do, probably to like try and emulate Woodstock or something like that. I think actually even at one point now that I've now that I've sort of mentioned that, I think at one point someone mentioned in the documentary they want to make it like a West Coast Woodstock. Um, I don't know if I'm making that up or maybe I'm just making a connection in my head, but um that's what their their kind of idea was, but when the concert, which was horrifically mismanaged, uh, when it actually gets underway, it just descends into absolute mayhem. And I think it's kind of perfectly encapsulate that era where, you know, it's coming at the end of the 60s, summer of love, free love, everything like that. And Vietnam kind of takes over and makes everything shitty and makes everyone paranoid and, you know, turns it into the sort of, that sort of heavy 1970s. I think this film kind of really captures that era really well, even though it is literally a concert film. It's just that undertones that run throughout it just really push that. And the fact that they would end it on Gimme Shelter, the song, which for me, when I think of Gimme Shelter, when I listen to Gimme Shelter, I don't think of the other. I, I think of like I think of that era and what encapsulate that era. Like Vietnam is kind of encapsulated to some people by like Creedence Clearwater Revival, Fortunate mm-hmm. Son, or the doors, this is the end, probably because of Apocalypse Now. But I think of Gimme Shelter. That's what makes me think of that era and the fact that they would end it on that song as well as things have just descended into madness. It just really sums up the film well and it kind of wraps it all together. And despite the filmmakers not even realizing, obviously they're shooting this and they released it all pretty much within the same year. 
they don't realize how well they've captured that change in era that, that's still to come really down the line it's kind of really cool to look back and compare it to what was before that era and what's going to come afterwards well and before we move too far off that point i i think that's I, I liked a lot of that as well. And, you know, early on in the film club, we saw Varda's Black Panthers. Mm. And that was in 1968 in San Francisco. And so you had, it wasn't really, you know, racist, uh, ra- racism, I guess, or racial tensions weren't really discussed specifically a lot in this movie. But it was certainly an undercurrent in San Francisco at that time. Um, and there was, you know, it's interesting, San Francisco's always been this kind of, uh, or, you know, early indicator or, or leading indicator, I should say, of progressive uh, kind of social you know progressions in the U.S. Social progressiveness in the in the U.S. and a lot of it started with these sort of conflicts, right? You have you have this the Black Panthers injustice. Um, you have this concert uh, twenty years well, it's 15, 16 years later. You have the Harvey Milk uh, uh, you know killing and, and trial, and it's just interesting. San Francisco has been at the center of so many of these controversies. Yeah. Um, in the South, they probably had him too, but they just hit him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sort of, it kind of goes back to what um, what Zach had mentioned, just in terms of, even though it doesn't push any particular narrative, um, that, that's what's good about this documentary as well, the fact that the filmmakers just kind of captured what was happening. Um, like, there was no stodgy narrator, there was no interviews with people after the fact describing, trying to sort of push a particular narrative, which so many documentaries then and now do any, and like Netflix brings out a new documentary every day and it's all mm-hmm. the same stilted formula of docu- of the, the narrator with the booming voice and interviews and recreations and it's all just very boring. Whereas this essentially captured a, a slice of life um, you know, it, it wasn't from from the the what I got from the film, and anyway, I didn't feel like I was being pushed into thinking, you know, one group was better than the other group, or you know, what, it was one person's fault and not the others. It really was kind of captured. They kind of captured both aspects of it. Obviously, the Hell's Angels. I don't know who. I don't know if the film touched on this. I don't know whose fucking idea that was. To hire the Hell's Angels to be the security at your concert. It's um, it wasn't entirely uncommon from my understanding to do that because they were just cheaper to hire than actual security and they were intimidating. You're the Rolling Stones, I'm sure you can pay for some. Yeah, you probably can. But, but I do wonder <laughs> with them if it comes across as more of that outlaw feel to it, like that um not yeah. necessarily outlaw, but just like that against conventions and almost like it it gives like a certain presence to the concert to have that almost. I mean, I don't know if that's what they were going for with that, but that's one way I could kind of see it as, you know, it headlines. They're trying to make it notorious before it even happened kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Oh yeah. The hell's angels were the security and stuff like that. And I mean, it's like, yeah, that's going to get headlines of some sort. That's a fair point. I got to say Sorry, go ahead, Chris. No, no, sorry. There, there, was it Metallica? There was other bands that used, like, there was other metal bands that used the Hell's Angels fairly frequently. Yeah, and I also wonder, and I wish, this is one of these things I probably should have looked into, but I didn't think a whole lot about it. 
you know, with territory being such a thing too, you know, it's almost wondered if they hadn't much of a choice depending on where the venue is. You That's know, true. I suppose yeah, the Angels might not have wanted someone else coming in on their turf. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much of San Francisco they controlled. I mean, they're kind of more, they're fairly, have a large area that was covered, especially in the 1970s more than I would say now. Um, but, I mean, I could see that as a possibility as well. Yeah, actually, I didn't even think, I didn't even consider that. Um, I suppose there's probably a reason they didn't put the development of that aspect in the documentary. I suppose someone was probably strong-armed or people didn't want to be sort of, you know, named as the guy who came up with the idea to have the Hells Angels or the guy who set it up or whatever. So I suppose that was probably left out intentionally because of so, obviously what would end up happening. So this is random, but I just remembered, I actually have a first-hand account of this. Um, oh. Okay. So it just so happens that one of the people that I, I, I kind of engage with a lot on Reddit um, has a, uh, he, he's from San Francisco and his dad was a concert promoter and he knew, okay, here we go. So the guy's name that, that was in charge of Altamont Speedway was Dick Carter. And, uh, and, and he goes, um, he wrote me a note and he said, who the hell has Hell's Angels as security. Uh, if you answered Dick Carter, you'd be right. Great guy, fascinating stories, horrific luck. So the guy was just all about like a show, apparently. Okay, well that's sort of makes sense then, like you were saying, Zach, just to make headlines and stuff. You know, it's gonna be no publicity is bad publicity. Yeah, precisely. It's like even if you're going down as a, as notorious, you know, it's better than going down. It's better than like going down as nothing, <laughs> isn't it? So. Especially if you're trying to beat out like Woodstock headlines, you know, from the previous yeah. year. And I mean, not even the previous year. I don't know what, I can't remember the dates on this, but I mean, Woodstock ran from what, uh, like, I don't know, probably like April to August of 69. I'd actually have to look it up, but I feel like it ended in August. So, I mean, it probably hadn't even been that long. They were probably still trying to ride the wave of the most like recent one. Yeah, it's uh, August 15th. It wasn't April. It was August. August 15th to 18th. Yeah. Even though I'm pretty sure it's... Yeah, it um, it, yeah, it's, it was an extra day. That's what it was. Um, what, one of the things that y'all were talking about earlier around the, the style of filmmaking from these, from the film, actual filmmakers. Yeah. Any chance y'all have seen Salesman or Grey Gardens? No, no. My, my girlfriend has seen Grey Gardens because she's like super obsessed with anything related to the Kennedys. Um, so she's seen Grey Gardens, but I haven't. So uh, this, is, although it's about like the world famous rock band and like, you know, it, it has like this kind of weird murder sort of twist to it and, and like violence twist to it. The idea that they simply presented a story without editorializing over it is is definitely their style um i i think that they're one of my favorite documentary filmmakers i've only seen three of their of their movies i can't say i've seen all they've done but both salesmen and great gardens they just find fascinating characters and they give the audience credit that they're gonna get how fascinating it is they don't really like swell the music or or have narrative over it they just present it and let you kind of immerse yourself in this world um I think everybody should watch Salesman. I think it's 
amazing, both as like a piece of Americana and also just a piece of history. And it's just really well made. It's interesting that they let them follow them around with the camera. And, um, you know, it's just, I think, I, I don't want to speak for the filmmakers, but they had this, it seems like they had this idea that the most interesting story is the one that, that people are going to, like that slightly, uh, you know, slightly larger version of themselves they're going to portray when they when they know there's a camera on them. Um, and and the characters in all their docs certainly seem to fit that. At least the ones I've seen. Um, I, I wouldn't say that's necessarily true for for Gimme Shelter, but I think it at least in the sense that they they let the story kind of tell itself. That's a that's a common commonality. So you're saying they would have made a really good Joe Exotic um, documentary. Oh so man. Yeah, yeah, that would have been interesting to see. <laughs> that guy didn't need a lot of help. Or Carol, was it Carol Baskin? She didn't need a lot of help. Carol Baskin. Bitch down in Florida, Carol Baskin. Bitch down in Florida. Killed her husband, <laughs> whacked him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely need to watch more by these guys. I, I need to watch Grey Gardens because my girlfriend speaks very highly of it. Um, she thought it was very interesting. So, uh, and like any sort of filmmaker that presents, like you're saying, a sort of unobstructed, an unobstructed view really of events, not pushing a narrative, not trying to spoon feed you information, even really just letting you come to your own conclusion based on what you're being presented. Um, I think that's the kind of best way you can make a documentary because, right. you know, as soon as you try to force a particular narrative you're automatically losing reality by doing that. You know, if you decide to leave out an aspect or focus heavily on another aspect that maybe was a smaller than sort of another one, you're you're already losing the whole point of a documentary by doing that. Whereas by allowing events to just unfold, and I love the idea that these guys did where they literally just had tons of camera people and just said, just shoot stuff and we'll 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 mash it all together. Because then really you are sort of just getting people just acting normally. It's not like there's just like one camera crew following different people around. Because if you have a ton of cameras going all the time, people are more inclined just to act normally because they don't know, they don't really know, like, you know, what's even happening is even going to end up in a film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of similar to um, Monterey Pop, which is by um, Panabaker, who is mm-hmm. probably the most well-known documentarian of that era. And it's very similar in that style as well, because uh, he just had a, just a, a camera crew shoot uh, the Monterey Pop Festival, um, you know, different acts and people just reacting to the acts. And I definitely got the same sort of feel and vibe from from this film as well. Just the way people act during it. Nobody really acts like they're in front of a camera. Uh, a lot of like there's a few people who just like do little sort of smiles or waves and stuff like that. But there's not really a whole lot of instance of, you know, people interacting with the camera people. They just seem to be just getting on with the concert and just getting on with enjoying themselves. They're probably completely whacked out of their mind. So they probably didn't even realize the camera was there half the time. But uh, uh, but still, I just like that this film just I, when I watched it, it made me feel like I was watching a slice of history, not having... You know, some documentaries to me, they just feel fake because they force yeah. narratives and have have narrators telling you what you should be seeing or noticing or have interviews with people 10 years later and they're going, oh, I like this and I like that. Mm-hmm. You automatically lose reality for me when you do that. Just capturing life 
and just putting it on film unobstructed just let the audience take it in that's the best kind of documentary in my book um and the worst kind is i'm gonna forget the name of it here but have you all seen the one it just came out like a year or two ago and it was uh all the problems with social media it's all the people that quit facebook and quit apple and they get them on camera talking about how there's an algorithm controlling everything the social yeah, I remember that coming out yeah it sounds kind of fascinating though at the same time <laughs> yeah super I mean, interesting topic yeah right super interesting topic but it's the problem of only presenting the story from one point of view and finding people that are just going to support the story that you want to push without providing a defending viewpoint because it's most likely like in this case of the social dilemma like it's most likely not defensible but without even giving them a chance or or somebody a chance to present the other side you're left feeling empty one of my favorite things about gimme shelter was how they showed fans having a blast even while the hell's angels were stabbing and like while that guy had a gun there were still 298,000 people that were having a great time. They had no idea what was going on. Yeah. Right. And then they panned out to the studio or, or, or cut to the um, editing room, excuse me. And they had the Rolling Stones watching the footage, disappointed in what was going on, like wishing they could have done more to stop it. And like all of those, the, the fact that it was like cutting between like all of those things were all true, right? There was fans that had a great time and left that concert saying what, how amazing it was. There was fans that got killed. There was four births, I think they said. There, there was a, a security disaster and the Stones weren't like, didn't approve of what was going on in retrospect. And those were all presented like at the same time as all being true. I thought that was like, I really liked it. I'm kind of talking myself into saying that 546 on They Shoot Pictures is okay. I kind of like this film <laughs> a lot the more we talk about it. Yeah, just I don't want to go too off topic here. We're just on the point you just made about, you know, documentaries point pushing one narrative over another. There's actually a really good recent documentary that just came out here in in Ireland, the UK, um, that does actually a really good job of thinking it's going to just be pushing one narrative and then it kind of flips halfway through. Um, it was called Murder at the Cottage. So in 19 i want to say 19 it was early 90s anyway there was a french woman who was holidaying in ireland sophie de plantier and she was murdered and it was a complete mystery it was like one of the biggest stories in ireland at the time because it was such a brutal murder we don't really get them here a whole lot in ireland like having a murder is just weird in the news i know that's probably gonna sound weird to you americans but if someone gets murdered it's like headline news for the whole country because it's like holy crap somebody was murdered it just oh, doesn't happen. This is boring. <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't, <laughs> it just doesn't happen here. So it was, it was major news at the time, and everyone thought it was this one fella who lived nearby because he was a bit eccentric. And the whole like first, it was like a five-part series. The first two episodes really go in and sort of tell you all about why the, the guards, the the Irish cops are called guards, why they were after this guy and how he fit the narrative and everything like that. And then you find out he they could never find any evidence it was him he had they couldn't find a, a motive that it was him and you're kind of thinking okay but they've still shown all this stuff how are they going to flip this so they end episode two by bringing out the guy his name was ian bailey and they spend the next three episodes talking to him about his side of the story so it really gives you it has interviews with the police who were there at the time 
saying how they thought it was him. And then it also has interviews with this guy, him telling you that it wasn't him. And it's like a perfect documentary for really giving you both sides of the story and then letting you decide afterwards whether or not you think he did it. So it's kind of like, if I try to put this in American terms, it's kind of like if they made a documentary about O.J. Simpson and they had all of Nicole and the guy, I can't remember his name, his family talking about how O.J. did it. And the next thing, the documentary filmmaker brings out O.J. and he sits there for three episodes and say how he didn't do it. Now, if you want that, O.J. wrote a book called If I Did It. The if is very small. (laughs) <laughs> uh, this, yeah it was just it was really really good and i'm sorry to go so off topic on this but no, just as, i just want to talk I about it from watch a that now, actually. standpoint it's really if you can get your hands on it now i don't know how you see it in the states but really well made documentaries by i don't know if you guys have heard of jim sheridan uh, oh yeah, an yeah. Irish documentary, uh, not documentary uh, irish director did my left foot and stuff like yeah. that and he made it he he narrates the whole thing he he's the one who interviews all these people and um, so he's there sitting down with the guy who um, has been acquitted of the murder in Ireland, but he was actually found guilty of the murder in France because he was actually been able to try it in France, but Ireland refused to extradite him because um, they never found him guilty of murder. So it's really interesting. It's a really interesting case in general, um, uh, but the documentary was really well put together just in terms of, just I, I just liked how, because the first reps was me and me and Neve were watching it, my girlfriend, and we were like, this guy definitely did it. He was, it's so obvious it was him. And then by the end of it, I'm like, I, I don't think this guy did it. Because we actually heard his side of the story, and he got to tell his side. So, um, sorry to go off off topic, um, but yeah, it give me shelter is also a very in a different way because obviously it doesn't push any narrative, whether for or against. But yeah, docu- in terms of documentaries go, give me shelter is a great one for people who don't like to be force fed a narrative, kind of like uh, Tiger King or <laughs> um, what's that other one, Making a Murderer. Oh, I hate me- I, I can rant for days about making yeah, as much they as just, people want the documentary. They they pushed out. They, they I can't even call them documentaries because they're just so pushing a particular narrative. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if you if you don't like to be forced fed your information, then Give Me Shelter is a documentary for you. I think. Now I feel like I have to bring up at least one documentary just to counter everyone. <laughs> I'll give you. My uh, the worst documentary I've ever seen, which is great in comparison to Give Me Shelter, that does the whole narrative pushing thing. Um, House of Numbers. Has either of you ever heard of this? No. It is an AIDS denialist documentary. Oh, my God. And it is amazing (laughs) because it is so like forceful to the point, like it manipulates like evidence and it'll uh And then at the end, like several people they interviewed, you'll see at the end of the documentary where they died and it'll say, but it wasn't cause of AIDS. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic to watch if you just want to pick it apart. But it does that whole idea of pushing a certain narrative and not letting any evidence speak for itself because, well, let's face it, it's. There isn't any evidence for this. <laughs> yeah, wait for the next wave of COVID denying documentaries that are going to come out in the next ten oh, years. Really? Oh, I love it shot. because I love conspiracy documentaries. They're so horribly made. Like I don't know how many like nine eleven conspiracy documentaries yeah. I've watched in my life because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they're entertaining. And all the flat earth stuff. Oh, I love it. Uh, absolutely love it. This just reminds me of a meme I saw recently, where it's like a fake news art news headline. It was like, man who jumps out of plane without a parachute dies of COVID vaccination. <laughs> <laughs> and like, that's, how, that's, like, that's how they would present it. They would, they would say he died of a COVID vaccination, but then not, 
present the fact that he also jumped out of an airplane without a parachute. So that's how these, that's how those kind of nut job crackpot filmmakers get their point across by just right. evading everything that that doesn't push their narrative. All right, and uh, welcome back to Interview Corner. Uh, <laughs> we're uh, very lucky this week uh, to have a chance to sit down with Kyle Greenberg from Utopia Films. Uh, Kyle is a wealth of knowledge of the industry, of uh, distribution of the, of the game, and, and he's actually, in, as a, in addition to being plugged into uh, many different companies that are all kind of promoting films theatrically uh, and very active on the uh, festival circuit, as well, he is also now uh, very uh, one of the core members of this kind of physical media distribution house, Utopia, at least that side of it. So. I uh, really enjoyed this discussion with Kyle, and uh, and I hope you will too. All right, so we're joined uh, by Kyle uh, from Utopia Distribution. Uh, Kyle, thanks so much for joining today. Uh, so you have, how long have you been with Utopia? Uh, I've been with Utopia a little over two years now. Um, and the company is almost three years old. Perfect. That's wonderful. And how'd you, how'd you get plugged in with those guys? Um, I kind of, I met one of the co-founders. Um, his name is Robert Schwartzman and uh, a guy who I had been working with for a bunch of years at um, Gunpowder and Sky had recently joined the team at Utopia um, and just had been kind of telling me a few of the things that they had signed and um, it just kind of immediately got me interested. Um, you know, before I joined, they had already signed Errol Morris's American Dharma, um, Annabelle Atanasio's Mickey and the Bear, and um, just couldn't be two, two more different films, but also had this really interesting through line of um, kind of daring slash debut filmmakers. You have on one side this Academy Award winner, um, Errol Morris, who had a notably rejected movie by the mainstream um, and like kind of was canceled for a year because of it um, and then you had uh, Annabelle who's a you know a debut filmmaker and the movie was just really stunning um, and not the sort of film that most indie distributors were really wanting to give too much of a chance um, just because it you know on paper it's it's a dark and dramatic film um, so yeah, we started talking and things, you know, uh, kind of quickly developed and, um, yeah, I ended up joining Utopia on, uh, specifically to head up the U S marketing or domestic marketing and distribution, which it's kind of like a overarching, uh, kind of often wide ranging role. Um, we're definitely, you know, a, an independent film company that's quickly growing. Um, but, yeah, you know, typically I handle anything from U.S., Canada, sometimes a few other territories, theatrical booking, um, work on the digital kind of home video T-Bond releases, um, and then, yeah, heading up all of our actual home video um, Blu-ray DVD releases as well. Um, so, That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for the background. Um, well, I, I got to know you all through your home video, through the physical media. Um, I was interested. I'm, I'm pretty, I'm a subscriber to Vinegar Syndrome. Uh, and 
you know, I check out, I always check out their partner labels and all of a sudden this bloody nose, empty pockets popped up and I was like, love the title. Um, uh, it just so happens that, you know, uh, Zach and I both spend, Zach, what's your favorite era? Is it, would you say sixties and seventies? Yeah, I would say I, I have a strong affinity for the seventies, especially. Yeah. And, and I happen to be kind of between the forties and the eighties, not really by choice, just kind of different films that I'm drawn to and stuff. And then, um, so I just don't, not great with current filmmakers to be totally honest. And then kind of read, read, read into the filmmakers behind Bloody Nose. And so I just took a chance on it and that movie floored me. I like, it was unbelievable. And so like, I would love to the extent you can talk about it. Like, I'd love to hear how you got engaged with those guys. And just like, if you're going to put out more of their stuff, cause like, I, I want them to make a lot more story, like a lot more films. That was so interesting what they did. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, th I think we kind of had that similar surprise reaction when we saw the movie and it had this crazy added effect of us entering COVID at the exact same time as we saw this film. And it was something about kind of, you know, like forgotten people and lost spaces and like just fucking community. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm no. Fine. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, you know, if you look at their filmography, these guys have done some incredible projects. Um, Western is a wonderful doc. Um, Chapatulis, uh, I always mess up the name of it. It's also really incredible. Um, and then, you know, they did a, a project with David Byrne as well, which um, I'm spacing on the title, but I want to say is Contemporary Color. Um, that was a... Um, you know, also really kind of stylish movie. So, you know, they just have like really incredible eyes and this project is kind of de deceptive. It, you know, it's more, there's more to it than meets the eye, um, you know, and that there's a little bit of staging, I guess you could say, um, to what's going on and how they've, um, like I would say fostered uh, and actually a very truthful documentary space. Um, some others might say it's fabricated, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I think what they did is, you know, it's just like, it's not what most documentary filmmakers are doing. Um, so right. yeah, I mean, it was just that immediate through line. The film played at Sundance and our team, you know, just kind of immediately hopped on it. Well, we're doing a, uh, we have a weekly film club. That's kind of the reason we're doing this podcast is to discuss what we do as part of the weekly film club that for um, Criterion subreddit, uh, one, of the, one of the subreddits. And uh, one of the films we're about to watch this week is Close Up from Kiristami, which is not, not too far removed from that kind of blurring the lines of that fiction and kind of nonfiction. Um, and then recently I saw a, uh, oh, I'm going to forget the name of it now, but it's Love in the, wait, no, not Love in the City. I'll, I'll think of the name here in a minute, but it's Fellini. It was one of, uh, there was an anthology project that Fellini was a part of, and, and it, everybody thought it was a documentary when it first came out, and it, found, it turns out that there were some actors in it um, as well, but there's not that many people that can pull that project off, and I just thought when I was watching it, like, these guys, I mean, they're, they're, they're in the same ballpark as far as, you know, at least in this movie, like, it holds up to close up, or it holds up to this movie, this, this one uh, I can't think of the name right now, but like this Fellini kind of anthology documentary, um, it, it's you could talk about it in the same quality, which is awesome. Yeah, kind of like F for Fake also comes yeah. to mind. There you go. I mean, a lot of stuff in the mockumentary 
kind of genre. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's again, just like something so peculiar where you're just, you um, there and, you know, there's a, a narrative feel to something that's also just very genuine. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, we were really kind of blessed with that whole experience and um, are actually, you know, our team does have Western in our catalog. They're one of their previous films. So you never know if we might end up doing something on home video with it. But um, yeah, I mean, they're just incredible filmmakers. So creative for anybody who has a chance to check out the Blu-ray. I mean, there's a bonus featurette that is unlike really any bonus interviews that you'll see. And I don't know if you guys have checked it out yet, but they basically, you know, set up a kind of variety show home bar in, in their basement in New Orleans and, uh, you know, had a few special guests pop by. Okay. Uh, okay. Let's say virtually, but yeah, I mean, check it out. I think, you know, what I've been really excited about with the vinegar collaboration is each one of the Blu-rays that we're doing is kind of like, an extension of the filmmaker's mind a little bit um, more than, you know, us trying to kind of force like a, a brand onto every single film. And, and, you know, it's a bit of a lens into, you know, what they were doing behind the scenes and, you know, has all the directors sort of commentary like any other Blu-ray. Well, I, yeah, certainly, you know, I think Minor Premise was very good as well, but on, on this topic of documentaries, I haven't seen it yet. I was kind of bummed. I didn't get to check it out this weekend. I got busy, but I want to watch Crestone as fast as I can as well. That sounds wild. Is it, does it live up to its kind of description? It just sounds really crazy. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think that was like a one-two punch with, with Bloody Nose and it was kind of, you know, it's another sort of documentary that really, um, yeah, I don't know. It borders documentary and narrative. And if you ask some of the rappers and stars of the film, whether it's a doc or a narrative, they all have, they all seem to have different opinions. Um, but, you know, I, I would also refer to it as a documentary. Um, it's just really kind of electric. The music is amazing. Animal Collective uh, did the score. Um, but all the rappers are awesome too and really kind of like reflect this growing I guess you could call it that SoundCloud movement um so you know it was just another film where it's like a really creative team and um you know I, I don't know if you guys know Memory Studios at all um no what is that so they're they're basically the kind of creative force behind the movie with director Marnie Allen um and Memory also did a movie number of years ago called rat film which i would definitely recommend you to check out so um yeah our team you know just we all really love what memory does um and you know just another movie where you see somebody doing something unusual and daring but also just really exciting and yeah i mean the, if you look at the packaging you can tell we had fun with that one so that's awesome. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, I, I definitely want to have, give Zach a chance to ask questions. One of the other things that was kind of on my mind was just, you know, it feels like early on that y'all are driven by um, sort of, you know, maybe people that are newer in their career that are telling very interesting stories or telling stories in a very interesting way. Um, is there anything else that you would use to kind of describe like what y'all look for and how, how you just, you know, choose what to put out on, on Blu-ray, I guess. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I'd say we're genre agnostic. We're, we're looking for films that, you know, just kind of strike our team in an emotional way and get our, get us excited. Um, you know, we don't want to like pigeonhole ourselves to just documentaries or just horror movies. Um, you know, I, I'd say our whole team has kind of different tastes. So yeah, you know, there's this like, um, through line of us being, uh, looking for kind of those debuts and kind of like those daring sort of projects. And we also really, you know, pride ourselves on being as artist forward as we can be with including our filmmakers, um, just in the creative process and in the conversation. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'd, I'd say it, it's kind of a mix, like, you know, we'd love to be doing more stuff with people like Errol Morris, um, the Ross bros, even, even though they're kind of under the radar. I mean, I, you know, I think Bloody Nose is their seventh film now. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'd say there's definitely a strong amount of debut filmmakers that we're excited to work with. And we have a few really, really exciting debuts coming up. Um, one called uh, El Planeta, which played at Sundance. Um, another one uh, by Jane Schoenbrunn called We're All Going to the World's Fair. So, yeah. Um, yeah, more more that we'll, we'll definitely we'll be talking about on home video and in the future. Looking that up, we're all going to the World's Fair 2021. Yeah, see, this is what I'm talking about. So I grew up in, when I fell in love with movies, it was, I, I felt like I got kind of lucky because it was right around like the early 2000s. And it was like, you know, Wes Anderson was kind of just hitting his prime. Tarantino was kind of hitting his prime. PTA was hitting his prime. There was like Chet Park Chan-wook was coming in from Korea like Takashi Miike was big, like that was kind of his prime in terms of like his international films. It was just like every weekend there was like some interesting story hitting the art houses. And then I, as I got more into movies, I went backwards in time, right? Cause there was like so much history and I kind of lost touch. And so in my head, there wasn't really like super easy to find like modern filmmakers that were telling stories like that. They kind of put me back in that period when I was falling in love with movies and uh, I mean, just quite frankly, like that's why I kind of I feel pretty drawn to y'all because I feel like you're kind of helping me get back into that with some with some new faces. It's amazing. Thank you. <laughs> no, that's super cool to hear. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's that's definitely one of the big hopes. And, um, you know, I, I think one of the teasers I can give you guys is in June, which is Vinegar's kind of big partner month we'll mm -hmm. be dropping um, Shiva Baby, which is probably gonna be our, our biggest release yet on Blu-ray. And just another incredible debut filmmaker, Emma Seligman, the film played at TIFF and pretty much every major festival you could really ask for. And it's just been kind of like uh, one of those lightning in a bottle sort of releases. So we're excited for that Blu-ray. It's going to have a bagel disc which I won't really explain that much more and just except let you guys see it when it comes out. Um, we'll have some actually, you know, a fold out poster that comes with that one. So just another cool example also of like how we're trying to mix it up per, uh, per project and per filmmaker. Um, just to go back early on, you were kind of talking about going to these festivals and you guys, 
uh, start buying these films, right? That's kind of a big part of how you get some of these. Um, so how does that process really look like? Um, is it a is it a sort of bid? Is it a blind buy? How does how exactly does that work? And from y'all's perspective, um, sure, yeah, we have uh, an acquisitions team, and you know our acquisitions team is kind of handling things before and in the midst and after a festival. And sometimes the conversations are ongoing, but sometimes it's we just know a filmmaker and we're reaching out to them directly sometimes a filmmaker um, has a sales agent and our team is going and talking to them about their movie and um yeah i mean we're not really in the like old school sundance days of personally of of you know going and making blind buys at you know at festivals um you know like really all, all that is kind of happening not even blindly, but just all of those kind of major headline deals are seem to be happening with the streamers these days. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we like to go in and talk about a movie as a team, see what we think we can do with it, whether it's theatrical or digital or even on Blu-ray. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we're, we're still a, a relatively new company. So we we're trying to be cautious in you know, what we do take on and, um, kind of, you know, making sure that we feel like we can kind of live up to the filmmakers' hopes and dreams and, you know, our own as well. Okay. Awesome. I, I wasn't actually sure how that process worked. You know, I've always heard of, um, you hear random, like an, you hear acquisitions from Netflix, of course, you were talking about streaming. It's pretty common there. Um, you hear that from a lot of them. So, um, as, I've never been to Sundance or anything like that or TIFF or anything like that. So, ha, I'm, have you been? Um, yeah, I've, I've done, I've done Sundance once and, and TIFF once and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of personally more of a, a genre festival fan. I love going to Fantastic. I, mm -hmm. I go to Fantasia in Montreal as much as I can. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's every festival has, you know, there's like the big, big market festivals, which Sundance still definitely has that value. Um, you know, TIFF, often you see some big sales out of, and um, South by Southwest, occasionally you'll see some big ones. Um, but, you know, a lot of like the other fests are also just kind of about more of like, uh, I guess the community and like the word of mouth building as well. So yeah, it, it depends, you know, we, yeah, I'd say we're, we're at every, at, I guess these days virtually at, a, at every festival, um, you know, but whether or not we're even physically there, we're trying to check out the lineups and see what might make sense to, to approach and in, in whatever way it can be approached. Okay. How does a, how does a producer's badge work at a virtual festival? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could tell you, I, you know, all the, all the virtual festivals are happening in different ways and, it's been pretty cool to see you know, how, how everybody tackles virtual in their own way. But um, yeah, admittedly, I mean, as you can probably tell by my interest in physical media, um, you know, hoping that a lot of our friends in the theater space are, are fully back open soon. And we've seen a lot of positive strides recently. So knock on wood. Yeah, so what does your uh, physical collection look like? You know, me and Chris are both collectors, so I'm curious. 
Um, I just moved, so it's a little smaller than it was, but I'd say it's, I don't, it's hard for me to even put a number to it. I, a few hundred, um, right now I, I have a kind of a mix of Blu-rays, DVDs, and then I also collect some VHS too. Um, so, um, I actually just got, we were, I, I don't know if this is kind of off, uh, too off tangent, but I just got a VHS of Action USA in the mail, which we were talking about earlier. So it was a nice callback. Um, but yeah, I'm, you know, trying to, trying not to take over my living room too much or else, um, or else my significant other will be, be pissed at me. Yeah. I, I, um, when my, we just had it, well, not just four years ago, we had a baby and, uh, part of that, we got rid of a lot of stuff and just kind of simplified. We live downtown. We're trying to stay downtown as long as we can. And I didn't know there was no other place to put mine except for the baby's room. So I've got some bookshelves and in front of the bookshelves, I've got like a little, like a, it looks like a wood scene, like a, like a kind of a woodsy, like, you know, fairy kind of jungle scene. And, uh, I've got that covering up my, uh, uh Freddy 13th box set in my like slasher stuff and my cannibal Holocaust. Um, it's right there next to the crib. It's just covered up with something pretty. Well, now you have an order for what movies you show them first. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's going to be horror. I just have to find the ones that are like, actually, it's funny. We were mentioning Severin earlier. They have a Severin kids line, which I don't know if they're joking or not, but they've technically put out two kids movies, which <laughs> sounds terrifying. <laughs> Shout with their kids line. Shout. Amazing. Um, yeah, it sounds like you have a future horror filmmaker in uh, uh, in your hands. Yeah, I also collect Criterion, so I think what I'm going to be doing, as well as obviously Utopia's line, I just just like I was talking about, just got Chris thrown in. So if you all get into the hundreds one day, or when y'all get into the hundreds one day, I'll do that little thing you do with with you know babies and movies where you like put two things on either side and see what they walk to. Is he going to walk to like the art house stuff or the horror stuff? <laughs> All right, we'll make it happen. Yeah, we're at we're at number six right now, but we're moving quick, so maybe you know, give us a year or two. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Have you had a particular favorite you've enjoyed working on since you've been there? Um, hmm. I know I this mean, is like I, asking your children, but I think yeah, that's, yeah, that's it's hard to play. <laughs> Don't hate to play favorites, um, but yeah, I mean, I'd say two, a few of my favorites are without a doubt bloody nose that that's our first utopia kind of official release with vinegar syndrome so that one's just of course going to be special to me and that was just such an amazing release um and crestone i mean we had a had the special 420 release with it it has you know an amazing slip cover um and you know i think that one's a really cool one for for the shelf um but yeah, Shiva Baby coming up is is really exciting too. Um, that one is just it's the sort of film that we had been chasing like as an entire team for um, pretty much a couple of years. So um, yeah, it's it's it's, it's worth checking out too if you haven't had a chance. Um, just wanted to show that to you real quick, Zach. <laughs> I was looking at uh, some different things. I was like, let me see what Chris is looking at. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that's fun. How's it been being a uh, vinegar syndrome partner? Has that been a good deal for you? Yeah, they're awesome. Um, I, I mean, it's been pretty cool for me because I actually first crossed path, 
paths with them years ago. They put out a film called The American Dreamer um, with Dennis Hopper, which I had been working on um, at another company and, you know, pretty much had stumbled in as this home video deal was being set up with them. And, um, you know, I was working on theatrical dates for the movie. And even then, you know, they were just really collaborative. And um, I remember getting the Blu-ray and I was like, this is really cool. It was kind of, you know, what you hope as like that, um, criterion what you hope like that criterion competitor will be you know it, it kind of it really puts criterion to its money with this kind of beautiful restoration and you know and have the booklet and just great extras um so yeah I, I had kind of kept my eyes on them ever since and um yeah when we were putting out that rad restoration that I mentioned um it just it kind of just restarted conversations with them um justin law liberty who you guys might know or i've met by now um at vinegar i i've known for a number of years from when he was at alamo so um yeah it was just like one of those things where you know it's business but it's also like truly a pleasure um because you know you know everybody over there really cares about what they're doing and you know um you know we're really trying to put out stuff that not only appeals to the vinegar audience, but might, you know, bring in some new audiences for them and um, kind of give the vinegar audience something different too. Um, instead of, you know, instead of kind of like the, you know, some of the B movies um, or action USAs that like we all love, obviously Crestone is like a far cry from that. So um, yeah, it's been really, that's what's been, I think most, exciting about just seeing the general reaction to all the utopia releases and um, you're seeing it in the vinegar forums <laughs> that yeah. you know, people are excited that's great well they're you know, they're big on um they're are you are you active on reddit at all do you spend much time there just a little bit anyway there's a subreddit called boutique blu-ray and um the the partner labels are getting a lot more love and kind of attention on there as well and um you know people are always complaining you, you're, you're talking about rad it if if boutique Blu-ray subreddit was a Walmart, there would have been arrests and physical fights over Rad. Um, I, I believe it <laughs> for if sure. If you find any extra copies like laying around your house, just feel free to email us again. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, <laughs> they're hard to come by. I only have one myself, so yeah, um, yeah. yeah, it's a challenge. Uh, but then recently, there's been I've, I've seen an uptick in people getting excited about like Fun City Editions and you guys and. Um, uh, you know, obviously the archive line, that that's a little bit, I mean, more tied by name, but, um, and then there's this like fantastic new partner label. I actually have, it's the next movie I'm going to watch. It looks like, a, it's called Doppelganger, I think. Have you seen that release? No. It looks amazing. It's about this like Finnish or Norwegian, like heavy metal, like death metal band. And it's kind of like a mockumentary, it looks like when they're on tour in the US and they're like, I don't know. Anyways, it just looks- oh, he heavy metal or is that- um here I, I can tell you about five seconds here it's um so it's doppelganger um let's see here this is this makes for a great podcast <laughs> uh, remember chris we're not the editors it's fine exactly Just make it as hard for adam as possible <laughs> exactly uh, yeah heavy trip oh uh, cool yeah yeah i haven't seen it yet but i've heard incredible things it's the next one open. Oh, Music Box Selects is the label, I guess. Sorry. 
Um, and it's uh, the name of the band is Impaled Rectum, which is just fantastic. <laughs> um, but you can probably uh, see in a little bit in my background, um, I worked on a movie called Lords of Chaos a few years ago. And oh, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. So that movie's great. No, I only know a little bit about the black metal death metal scene um but i've heard because of that i've heard some good stuff about this one so yeah let me know what you think i'm, I'm trying to dive more into these partner labels myself admittedly all right and welcome back i hope you enjoyed the interview with utopia um now we're going to be heading into a the 1952 film limelight directed by a man who would come in 20th place in a charlie chaplin lookalike concert um, a fading comedian is suicide and a suicidally despondent ballet dancer must look into each other to find purpose and hope in their lives. What'd you guys think? I, I, I really liked it. I was really afraid to watch this film. I like Charlie Chaplin as much as the next guy. I like the kid city lights, great film, such a heartwarming film. I see the runtime of two and a half hours. And I think, I don't know if I can do Charlie Chaplin stick for, for that long. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize this was a talkie when it sort of first got voted in. So that was obviously a little bit more helpful. There's definitely moments that I didn't love. And I do think it, it did drag in parts. I think, I don't think the pacing was the best. But overall, I really liked it. It was charming. It's a great, it was, even though it wasn't his last film, I think it was his last Hollywood film. So the film is a really good swan song for him and Buster Keaton, who also, who also has a small role in the film. Um, but yeah, I liked it. It was charming. And I, uh, you know, even you kind of forget about pacing issues when a, when a film kind of charms you. And uh, that's what kind of happened uh, for me with this film. Uh, real quick, it's um, 5.58 on the issued pictures. So what, what was, what was, give me shelter again? How 5.46. Wow, oh, super very close. That's that has to be, that had. has to be the closest. Yeah, that's and like for a 10,000 film list, you know, that's, that's yeah. pretty, even to be in like within a hundred of each other is pretty good yeah. going. Yeah, let alone twelve. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I was thinking that too. This is so this is essentially the same movie. <laughs> <laughs> exactly the same, no difference. <laughs> um, uh, you know what? Like, I, I, I was kind of like I had like the angel and the demon kind of like arguing with each other over my shoulder as I was watching this movie. I'm a big fan of Kurosawa's Madadeo. Have you all seen that? negative so it's very similar in that it's sort of a kurosawa saying like this is how i this is how i think elders should be treated and this is how i think like i want people to remember me it wasn't about kurosawa it was about an aging businessman but it was very much like you know you could tell there was a lot of parallels to an aging kurosawa in the movie and i think that this had a very similar effect on me of sort of saying Chaplin kind of saying, like, guys, this is how I want to be remembered, right? Because he had had all that drama coming out with the stupid uh, blacklist and yeah. um, some stuff that was not so stupid about him marrying young teenagers, which that's a different which part kind of, of his plays life. a part in this. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that he took that right on the head, right, and chose to play take, like, the, the high road so many times with this. But anyways, but I, I think he was sort of – this felt to me like Chaplin kind of saying, like, y'all, this is how I want to be remembered. Um, as a clown, as a performer, right? As somebody who helped bring an industry forward, he kind of like a lot of the comedians that came after him, like they were standing on the shoulder of giants. He was the giant, right? 
Um, so I think he gets a pass, right? I think he gets to make this movie. Like there's a few directors that are, that are kind of transcend genres and transcend like the, you know, they're globally recognized and they get to do this. And I think this is his, like, I think he got to make this. I'm fine with it. I don't think I loved it, but I didn't hate it. It was cute. It was, like you said, I think charming is a good word for it. Um, and I'm glad he made it. If this is what he needed to do to, to feel like he was kind of nearing the end of his career and this is a story he wanted to tell, I'm glad he got to make it. One element I think is really interesting because the only other Charlie Chaplin talkie I've seen is The Great Dictator, which I'm assuming both of you have seen or at least seen. Have not. No, nope. Well, you probably know the famous scene, right? I've seen images, but I've never seen any actual live scenes from it. Oh, okay. So this is good. I'll, I'll just, um, one thing I find interesting, um, in that one, he has that, you know, the famous scene the, in Great Dictator that talks about, you know, he wants to see beauty in the world. The life is great. Um, and it was interesting to watch this and realize how much of that, and I think this comes out like 12, 10 or 12 years after after this, a lot of that element is still in here, just more on a personal level when he talks mm -hmm. to the ballet dancer. Um, just like, uh, the, like almost like this idea that so odd to me to think that Charlie Chaplin has such a focus on the philosophy and the beauty of life and mm -hmm. tries to have this positive spin on things. I don't know. I just, I thought it was interesting to see that brought in to another film so long afterwards. And I don't know if he does that in his other talkies, but he definitely does it in those two. Well, I think that's kind of him as a filmmaker. He's always been very much a life affirming filmmaker even if he doesn't repeat exact motifs he'll always try and play the sentimentality card or the you know like the beauty card or you know like in city lights uh, have you guys have you seen city lights i have not chris have you seen city lights i've been putting this off as long as possible this is my first chapter my, my dudes oh this is your first chapter okay okay That's <laughs> city lights is a masterpiece um it's it's such a gorgeous film it's very sentimental, though, and I suppose some people may find it a bit, just a bit, you know, because it kind of goes a bit overboard. But yeah, like finding this sort of beauty in the world, even no matter where you sort of come from or what your situation is, it's very much Chaplin, you know, whether it be in City Lights where he falls in love with a blind girl and he's a tramp and he's trying to do his best to save money to basically give her, get her eye surgery so that she can see. And um, that's the whole plot of City Lights. You know, it's a really, really sweet, tender story. It's even like the same with something a bit more simpler, like the kid where, you know, he finds this baby. He's still a tramp, but he does his best to raise this child to be to be a good person. Um, so I just, yeah, this sort of idea of finding beauty in every day and no matter what your sort of outlook is or where you are in life, always just try and find some beauty or some some kindness. It's very much Chaplin's shtick. Yeah, so that, that kind of makes sense now, because I was sitting there like when he started talking to her and I think it was like the first conversation after, after she wakes up, like talking about, you know, the sun isn't conscious, the the stars aren't conscious, they just <laughs> spin on their axis. He's like, you're conscious. That's what matters. And that should be yeah. what's worth living for. And I was like, man, this feels so much like the great dictator speech, <laughs> but it makes more sense that he just likes to do that. That's just his thing. Yeah. Like this will probably make, this is probably explains why I might have liked it a bit more than you, Chris, because so much of Chaplin's character in this film really embodies, you know, him as a person, but then also obviously the Calvero character is quite obvious, uh, a play on his tramp character. 
Mm-hmm. And you know how after you know the silent era ended, and obviously the blacklisting and stuff aside, but after the silent era ended, both you know anyone, all the silent comedians who now would be looked upon as clowns, you know, well in that era anyway. Obviously now we recognize them as icons, but mm-hmm. in, you know in those times, sort of forties and fifties, they would have been looked on as sort of maybe a bit more lowbrow, bit clownish, like Calvero is depicted likes of him and Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't transition well into talkies. Obviously Chaplin mm-hmm. did it better than the other two, but they would have been sort of seen as sort of clowns. And that's what Calvaro was obviously doing here. And the whole idea of Chaplin's sort of older character, hoping to make a break at it again, maybe for one last gig. It's essentially it's is what like Limelight is so meta in that regard. And it's kind of ahead of its time really. Um it is very, very meta in terms of comparing it to just to his own sort of circumstance and where his career went after the, yeah. the silent era ended. Um, and I like, uh, I like the sentimentality. I like the sort of idea that he's brought in, even the fact that he's now, now that he's getting to do his final show and he's given it one last toss, he's kind of happy to pass the bat on down to the next generation who, funnily enough, like the two people who's passing the bat on down to, obviously you have the ballet dancer whose name escapes me, um, and then her love interest after he nobly refuses her advances. Uh-huh. <laughs> her love interest is a music composer. So you have mm-hmm. a ballet dancer and a music composer being passed the bat on down from a clown. And what that says to me is that Chaplin is recognizing that maybe his era was a bit clownish. It was a bit lowbrow. They were just there cracking jokes. The filmmakers nowadays, they're creating a bit more highbrow art. And he's happy to pass the bat on down to that and sort of go out, knowing that people did enjoy him at the time, but it's not really what people want now. Maybe I'm reading way too much into this. No, I completely agree. But that's how I felt watching it. And it kind of sealed the deal for me when I realized why the music composer looks so much like Charlie Chaplin. And I realized that's his son. Uh, oh, okay. for the ballet dancer I was like this dude looks so much like Chaplin and then I, I, I read the credits and I saw that it was his son so this, is why, this is why the film kind of wraps up really well for me even though there are parts that kind of slog there's this one fucking scene that Chaplin is doing I think it's in a dream sequence where he's doing this flea circus scene mm-hmm. oh, Jesus, the it, dry, it, it drove me up the wall I was so I was so done with that scene like two minutes into it it was kind of like when we watched Duck Soup. I was about to say that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was just so done with that scene, and he just kept going. So it's not a perfect film, but I just think the core idea of the film is just, it's so well done, and I, I that's what really sort of makes me lean on the side of really liking it versus being a bit cold to it. I feel like I got to give Chaplin a lot of credit, because we are talking about, you know, this is a goodbye in some sense, a goodbye to an era that had kind of already been gone for a little while um, and that acceptance of that. But I mean, there's some really solid filmmaking techniques, especially mm-hmm. for that time. I mean, he had, there, there's definitely a lot of that feels very 30 ish in some, in some sense. Um, but I don't know. I feel like uh, it, it worked well in its era as well. And I feel like that's a pretty good adaptive quality for Chaplin to do that many years after his main thing was kind of gone. Yeah, so, there's, a, there's an incredible sequence. Um, sorry to, to cut you out there, Chris. Just on the just the notion of filmmaking techniques mm-hmm. and stuff. There's a really 
the, the, the ballet sequences are fantastic yeah. in this film. The, they're, they're shot impeccably. They really reminded me of the Red Shoes, um, which I know I brought up on this podcast before, and I don't know if you guys have managed to see it in the meantime. But um, yeah, there, there's, yeah, the ballet scenes in this film are really, really, really well made. Kind of like, I was like kind of surprised because um, like, like you know, what you were saying, Zach, you know, obviously Chaplin, he was good at what he did from the silent comedy era, all very sort of static box shots of a man in the middle of a room and things happen around the man. Whereas mm-hmm. in this, it was shot much more like a drama. The camera moved a lot more. There was close ups. There was different mm-hmm. angles. And things like that. It, it really showed his maturity as a filmmaker, I think, this film. That's why yeah. I had to get rid of the Hitler stash. finally um there's two movies i feel like i have to bring up that are both probably great like companion pieces to this that i just want to make sure we're kind of championing here while we're talking about limelight for the for the millions of listeners so one is so jacques tati who we saw um his uh, we saw michel hulot's holiday mr bean's holiday yeah mr bean's holiday (laughs) <laughs> so Jacques Tati wrote a screenplay that he didn't ever get to make called The Illusionist that got made into an animated film in 2010 that's one of the most sweet and tender stories of, uh, of, of, a, of a performer, of a vaudeville performer passing the baton off and actually not even really passing the baton as much as just recognizing that the world is kind of passing him by. It's very sad at times, but, but the main character, in this case Jack Tati, doesn't want people to feel sad for him. Like it just, it's just the way things happen. Like the world is just kind of moving on. Uh, his, his character's name in the illusionist is called Tatischev, which is actually Jacques Tati's name. He was actually a Russian guy who, who, who came to France and shortened it. Um, so if y'all get a chance, it's beautiful. It's, from, it's the animation style of Triple to Belleville. I'm, I'm sure y'all have at least heard of that. that yeah, that I one. haven't seen it though. Really interesting, unique, kind of fresh, exciting animation style. Very funny. A lot of like clever use of. Uh, there's a lot of energy in it, which is not always the case with animation films for me. I, they, I think sometimes it kind of relies on the fact that it's like pretty, but like the way that this particular uh, artist does it, there's a lot of energy in the animation. Um, Triple to Belleville is good, and The Illusionist is fantastic. And then separately, y'all know I'm doing that Fellini run. He made a movie called The Clowns, and this is almost exactly what it's about. The clown, there's they follow this group called the White Hat Clowns in Italy, and they're just they used to be they used to tour around the country and sell out venues, and now they can barely survive. So it's uh, a lot of similar themes, I think, in the 50s and 60s around like the passing of, of you know a generation on of, of entertainment and what's yeah. next. See, I thought you were going to kind of bring up because uh, one, it like when I it, it doesn't feel like it after I watched the movie, but it felt like it in premise was uh. 2014's Birdman uh, with Michael Keaton. Oh, uh, yeah. Actually, that's not. Yeah, I can see it, at least in at least in talking about it. Yeah. Yeah, and the uh, idea that you know, of course, it's very meta more for Michael Keaton than it is for the director Alejandro. I'm not even going to attempt. It's fine. Um, <laughs> he won two. He he won two best uh, best director Oscars. He doesn't need me to pronounce. Yeah, cool. I love that guy. Anyways, go ahead. Yeah. Um. But you know, you you know, had of course Michael Keaton. Um character was formerly the Birdman in a comic book movie and his career ended up being a whole lot of nothing because he never could really shake that you know being a famous superhero and he felt like he needed to bring artistic merit to his career 
mm-hmm. um, which is definitely very different after watching it. But when I read the synopsis, I was like, oh, OK, it's kind of like a bird man from 60 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've never seen Birdman, but I know what it's about, and I definitely see where you um, where where you'd get that sort of connection, because you know essentially that's what Chaplin's trying to kind of do here with 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 Calvero slash the Tramp character, um, but I suppose maybe different and different sort of ends in terms of how what where they're trying to get with their stories. Obviously, Chap in this film, Chaplin doesn't mind you know, going down as Calvero and always being Calvero. I don't know how Birdman ends. I've never seen it, but um, I don't know if it's any different to that, but yeah. Yeah, it's just, the, it's the idea of bringing legitimacy to your career, which is I think is like you're mentioning why they're very different. Um, mm. Where where you go in your career, like is it okay to be one trick or anything like that? Yeah, that's, that's fair. Just just more from an observation standpoint, thinking about 1952, y'all, I, I thought it would be interesting to talk about, so two movies from John Wayne, two movies from Marilyn Monroe, two movies from Gregory Peck, and a Burt Lancaster movie came out, right? So this was the, this was the year of stars, right? Like yeah. High Noon, The Quiet Man, Monkey Business, Don't Bother to Knock, Singing in the Rain, there's a whole bunch. If you go into 1952, there's a whole bunch of just big star power, like, movies. Um, and and this came out and just what a fascinating like countercultural piece of almost like the death of a star in a way or like mm-hmm. you know like like you talk about the handing off of the baton so I thought that might be worth just kind of mentioning here at the end as as we're, as we're thinking about Chaplin and and where he was also just in 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 time in history right uh, he was competing up against the the likes of John Wayne kind of these first big action stars. Um, and uh, maybe struggling to find his place in this world as well. So I think that might add some some context around uh, the movie. Uh, it's just a weird, well, I don't want to say weird, but it's just kind of a juxtapose as the kind of films that were coming out at that time, you know, sort of late 40s, early 50s. It was pretty much all about Westerns, film noirs. Mm-hmm. You didn't really get a whole ton of like sort of cutesy, dramedy kind of films unless it was like a like a Marilyn Monroe film or right. or like a Jack Lemmon film or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas obviously much, but even then screwball comedy was kind of out of, out of vogue by then as well, by 1952. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose what some like it hot came out sometime in the fifties. I can't remember. I think it was more late fifties, but um, yeah, like a few, like I'm looking at the list here as well of films that came out like that year. And it's like, you have like high noon affair in Trinidad. Like you said, the quiet man, I suppose it's kind of, cutesy um but you know not in the same kind of way um yeah it, it is kind of a weird outlier i suppose the sound of closest film you can kind of like just looking at the list of 1952 films here that have come out the sort of closest you might compare it to would be like singing in the rain because that also kind of talks about that transition of silent to talky yeah era. that's true that's true. Um, you know, that's the whole point of the film is, you know, they're making their first sound picture. Um, now, obviously, Limelight only really talks about that contextually rather than literally. But, um, yeah, most of it, it's kind of like a weird outlier for the films that were coming out around that time, which was obviously more action orientated, whether they were Westerns or whether they were like film noirs, detective, crackpotty mm-hmm. kind of films. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's definitely interesting, uh, just as a sort of outlier in that era. 
Great. Uh, and now we're coming into our last segment, which as always is any other business, just where we want to just give a shout out to a film we watched recently. It doesn't have to be Criterion, doesn't have to be good, just something you watched, you liked, and you want to give a shout out to. Um, I'm going to jump on mine first, which with a film that I watched on the Criterion channel last week, um, which I really, really loved. Um, I'd never heard of the film. I was vaguely aware of the director. It's only her second picture. I'm not going to lie. I was just completely drawn in by the film's title because it's just fucking mental. And I saw the title and I thought, I got to watch this film. It's from Lily Horvat, who's a Hungarian director. And films from 2020 is called Preparations to Be Together for an Unknown Period of Time. And I saw that title and I'm like, I'm watching this fucking film. What a mouthful. <laughs> you know, that's like a that's like a Fallout Boy song title from 2004. You know, I, I just got drawn in by that. And it's a really intoxicating film. Um, I, I'm not going to go too deep because it's if I go too deep, it'll be really spoilery. But just to give you like a really basic rundown, it's kind of like a last year in Marion Bad kind of situation. I don't know if you've seen that from Alan Rene. Um, but basically this neurosurgeon, she's Hungarian. She worked in America for the last 20 odd years. She meets this other doctor at a conference who's also Hungarian. And they decide that they're going to meet together back in Hungary. And they're going to be together. They fell in love, whatever. She goes back to Hungary. They go to this destination that they decided they were going to meet to meet at, I should say, he never shows up. She eventually tracks him down and he says, who the fuck are you? <laughs> Not literally, but he, he doesn't recognize it, doesn't know who she is, doesn't know why she's there. And that's where the film kind of takes off. Like that all happens within like the first five, 10 minutes of the film. And, and it just kind of sort of goes down a route from there. Um, but the, the direction is fantastic. The, the lead actress, Natasha Stork, she's only done a very small handful of stuff. But she's fantastic. She's just insanely good in this film. It's really enigmatic. The director does a great job of obscuring what's really going on. It's not like the kind of like I went into the film expecting like maybe like a mystery thriller or like an identity crisis kind of film, and it doesn't really end up being like that at all. And Lily Horvat, the director, is super talented. I'm I'm excited to see where her career goes, but um. This is only her second feature. I don't know if I mentioned, but um, yeah, she, she just really does a great job of obscuring what's going on until she wants you to see it. And it's it's a really really well made film. It's on the Criterion Channel now. If you want a, a film that the guys will know, I like a film that wraps up in a tight ninety. If you like a film that wraps up really well in a tight ninety minutes, that really it takes you on a on a journey emotionally as well as you know just where you're going but um yeah I, I really recommend the film i'm gonna say the long title again just in case you missed it the first time it's preparations to be together for an unknown period of time uh, definitely highly recommended in my book all right we're trying to keep this podcast under two hours you can't keep saying the time <laughs> <laughs> we can, like, can, like crack it to hungarian first now <laughs> um um, that's great that you brought up a Lily Horvat film. I'm going to talk about her first film, oh, awesome. a 1997 yeah. film called Alien Resurrection. Oh, <laughs> you really had. To... <laughs> I was going to say she was like 12 in 1997. I'm pretty sure it was a student film that wound up getting picked up by Hollywood. Um, she uh... forgot the lighting. <laughs> so. I've been going through this series very slowly because I haven't really been enjoying it. But um, 
I, I don't get why people hate on Aliens 3 and 4 so much. So Alien Resurrection is directed by the guy that four years later would do Amelie, Jean-Pierre Genou, and written by the guy that would ruin the Marvel's universe, Joss Whedon. <laughs> and um, I should clarify for Marvel nerds listening, Chris hasn't seen a Marvel movie past Age of Ultron. So well, I wouldn't either. That was terrible. So... Well, I'm just trying to say Marvel <laughs> redeems itself pretty well after Whedon's. But uh, sorry for undercutting you there, Chris. <laughs> no, 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 it's all good. I, I probably shouldn't say ruin them. That's not really fair. But I, I think Whedon's, he, he stands on his own two feet. Buffy and Firefly I actually really liked and whatever. So Whedon's fine. Uh, but I'm going to defend him here because if you take away Genu's like kookiness and if you forget, like he tried to kind of make like City of Lost Children or Delicatessen which are these movies that he'd sort of become famous for, very off-center, dark comedies, but but in you know the realm of science fiction or in the realm of like family dynamics. And like if you sort of like take those away, and those elements are in, in Alien Resurrection and they're they're not good. They shouldn't be there. It's the wrong director to choose for that franchise. But if you look at the story that was there, it's kind of badass. Like they rebuild Ripley into this like kind of cyborg creature who's uh, genetically modified to be a, a killer. So they finally, they, they kind of pull on that thread from, because that was my biggest point of discomfort from the first three movies is like, she's like a scientist. Why are they making her into like the Terminator? Doesn't make sense. But here they just go, they double down and like genetically engineer her to be a killer. Uh, and it's, I don't know, like the movie's kind of cool from that perspective. Like I kind of like the story of it and I like the general premise of it a lot, just totally wrong director. Um, so I, I think I think the people should watch Alien and Aliens as probably standalone. You can debate which one's better. I didn't like Aliens, but it's because I don't like Michael Bay. <laughs> said that on, said <laughs> call, that back to, call back uh, to last, last episode there. So. <laughs> Um, now the question is: So you're gonna are you gonna continue with Prometheus next? So it goes back to Ridley Scott, right? Yeah, it goes back yeah. to Ridley Scott, and it's written by, written by Damon Lindelof. That's where the divisiveness is gonna come from. So I'm very curious what side you're gonna lean on there. And then there's a final one, right? Or I don't know, final, but there's uh, another Alien one. Covenant. And then if yeah. you want to get like specific, you got AVP and AVP Requiem, which no, don't no. <laughs> No, I thought I saw Alien I, versus I, Predator is not is actually kind of fun as a complete stand. It, yeah. It's a completely different like timeline. It's a different canon, but like Alien versus Predator is a fun film. I think you'll like Alien versus Predator because it's a fun. Yeah, film. Yeah, because if you just you you go into it with the right mindset. If totally. you ignore the fact that it should never have been PG thirteen. Oh, yeah. oh, and then they fix that with Requiem, but you can't see it. Like the whole movie is so dark, you can't see the movie. Oh. <laughs> so no, you'll have yeah. So cut the lights down before you get the requiem. <laughs> um, and, and I will say that I haven't had a chance to do a write up on this yet. But last night I saw Iron Man three. I will be sh stunned if that is not the best one in in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I love that movie so much. I think it's the best so far in, in terms of where you're going in terms of what you've seen so far. It's probably the best so far, but it, it does get better. Great. Well, that was fantastic. Shane Black was the right choice for that. I think they, that, was, that was fantastic. So anyways, a Alien Resurrection, give it a shot. Watch Alien 3 from the perspective of stupid premise, I think executed very well. Alien 4, I would say watch from the angle of 
really cool premise executed by the wrong director. And I, I think if you go into that lens, it's possible you can enjoy them for what they are. Well, that's kind of interesting idea since I, I don't, you know, you have David Fincher for three, so it's going to be executed well. Yeah. But yeah, he's probably yeah. the best you could have got out of that movie. Three and oh, four are just weird for me. Like three and four are just weird. Like at first two are like stone cold classics mm-hmm. and then three and four are just kind of weird. I just to recap, Chris, I just, just want to recap why you what you think about four. So you change the director, change the cinematographer, change most of the story, and then it's a good film. <laughs> no, <specifically, laughs> that's what I got from your description. Specifically, director and cinematographer. Okay. I think the story's good. That's a weird choice, Janae. I I didn't even realize he had directed it, and I'd seen Emily recently, and that just sounds jarring as fuck to me. To be honest with you, it's been yeah. a long time since I've seen Resurrection, though. To be fair, I remember the basketball shot when Ripley does the shot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which fact that she Tales did. in the comparison of Escape from L.A. I was just about to bring that up. Yeah, that's the best <laughs> basketball scene ever in a in an action movie that shouldn't have a basketball scene. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, I will bring mine up, and I'm hoping I didn't bring this up last time, but I, <laughs> I, I don't think it did. Um, the one I wanted to talk about was, um, and I'm going to ask Chris a question real quick. Who was the guy who directed Cat People? Oh. Um, or either one. Whoever can pronounce it. I, hold on Jacques, one second. Well, it depends which version. So Jacques Tournier did the original. Thank you. You got it. Um, so directed <laughs> by him. Uh, it's uh, his film, The Leopard Man. I just really didn't want to give it a shot. Um, it is, I don't know. I think it came out a year after Cat People did. Because I think Cat People came out in 42. Yeah. And this came out in 1943. And since Adam likes really really tight 90 minute movies i'm sure he would love a very nice 66 minute movie i've already been trying to find a way to watch it since i since i wrote up since i put your review on the website and i noticed how short it was i'm like i need to find a way to watch this fucking film. <laughs> like like it's almost a short film <laughs> that's that's right up my ass your cat people is only a very similar length as well i think cat people comes in just over an hour well and i, and I think you would like i think both of you guys i don't know if you've seen it chris or not have you seen leopard man no no, it, it's it's a very, really cool movie. So even though it came comes out in like 1943, it is the predecessor to Jalo that I can see. Like it it has like all you would expect from a Jalo film. It's oh, cool. it, of course it has your noir elements to it as well. But the the premise of the movie is that there is basically they're trying to put on a show. So they let this woman carry around a leopard, which is not a leopard, but we'll get into that. I think it's a panther, um, but it's not a leopard for sure, but they keep calling it that. And essentially the leopard does end up killing a 12 year old girl because it got scared and they can't find it. And uh, then there's these murders that appear to be coming from a leopard, though the guy who owned the leopard is positive. It's not the one doing the killings that someone else is going around and basically framing the leopard for various murders in the area. And so it plays off into this like mystery element idea and as ridiculous as it can kind of sound, it takes itself pretty seriously and it does well to put that tension there. And, uh, you know, it's got like some kind of violent for 1943 for sure. Like, you know, they're, they're going to allude to a lot more than anything, but there's some like really nice tense parts and, it's kind of cool to see something like this come out in 43 when it's something you would expect to come out in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Nice. 
Ter- I haven't seen Leopard Man, but obviously I've seen Cat People and I've seen Night of the Demon. I think it's called Curse of the Demon in mm-hmm. America. Like Turnier is a super talented director. Like from a filmmaker standpoint, like he he knows what he's doing behind the camera. Um, like he's he's no slouch. Um, and I definitely want to see Leopard People. I didn't love Cat People. I more appreciated Cat People more than I loved it. And Night of the Demon. I don't. Has, have you guys seen Night of the Demon? Yes. Yeah. No, I haven't seen. I, it. I don't know if you're going to agree with me on this, Zach. Night of the Demon is one creative decision away from being an absolute 10 out of 10 masterpiece. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep. Yeah, it's like one creative decision. If they just had done one thing, it would have been like, it would have been like one of the best films ever made. From definitely one of the best horror films ever made. Even though, like, technically speaking, it probably already is. But it's like one decision away from being like a 10 out of 10 Stone Cold classic. But yeah, Terminator's a Terminator. Terminator. That's what I'm going to call it. Terminator. He's a super talented filmmaker. And I, I do really want to see Leopard People. I know I joke about the runtime being like the selling point for me. Um, but I, I do really want to see Leopard People only because I think Terminator is a, a really, really good filmmaker. Yeah, I think I recommend it highly. I know I know they don't have Screen Factory in Ireland, and maybe they're the ones who put it out. So I don't know if anybody else has. I haven't, I haven't looked not. at the, I haven't looked on their on their site. I'm actually kind of curious to see if they deliver to Ireland, because I know some of the smaller boutiques do, which is Criterion are are mean and they don't. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm debating whether or not we should correct you, Adam, that it's Leopard Man, not the Leopard People, but. Say leopard people. I know oh yeah, people. I think it's because you were talking about cat people yeah. and then leopard man, and it just yeah. like kind of got crossed. Yeah. But I knew which one you're talking it's, about. It's the same thing. Terminator is the one that did the leopard Terminator. people. <laughs> that was like the what, what's those guys who make like those crappy ripoff films? And uh, what's oh, that asylum company? films? Yeah, that's like the asylum version of <laughs> of the leopard Dude. man. That would be amazing if Asylum would go back to like 30s and 40s films just to cool. like make ripoff films. <laughs> yeah, they'd never do because they'd never make any money because people would be like, they they wouldn't get the reference. But mm-hmm. um, it, it would be cool. Um, but yeah, I need to check and see if, if Scream or Shout, whatever. Well, I don't know what their official is. There, are, are they Shout is the main one and Scream is their horror Scream one. Scream is the horror one. Yeah, I need to see if they deliver to Ireland because I know some of the smaller boutiques do, like Arbelas, I know that they do, for example. Um, because if I do, then great for me. Um, I'm going to be ordering a lot of stuff because I couldn't find it online anywhere, not even on like iTunes had it or anything like that. So, um, I definitely want to get my hands on it and, and watch it because it sounds it sounds good, and I like I like the Terminator. He's he's a cool guy. <laughs> All fans of the Terminator here. That's yeah. what he was called when he was in college, when he was in his uh, frat, when he was rushing for his fraternity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the Terminator, another brewski, man. <laughs> All my knowledge of frat houses comes from Animal House, so I, that's, that's 100% accurate. That's oh, true for most people, yeah. Right. That wraps up this week's episode of They Live by Film. If you want to read more of our thoughts, visit theylivebyfilm.com. And you can also follow our Letterboxd, Reddit, and Instagram accounts from the links in the description. For now, take care.